we are now at 181. And the master, soon after my arrival at Mount Washington, it's a very interesting section we're coming to. It always is an interesting section. The master, soon after my arrival at Mount Washington, was planning to send Harvey Allen, a brother monk, to India. Harvey went later to visit his parents. And by the time he returned, he'd caught the bug of delusion. Losing his attunement with our way of life, not long afterward, he returned to, to the world. The master said to me, after Harvey Allen returned here, I passed him one day as he was working in the garden. As I went by, I felt a hot wave coming from him and said to him, things aren't going so well, are they? He didn't answer. I knew then that our way of life was no longer for him. It's so touching, isn't it? You know, it's also what's so sweet is that Master you know, held out in front of him this idea that he could go to India and represent Master's work in India, even though, it, you know, it's, it's not, not as if... Um, it's not as if Master didn't know what he was going to be tempted by or even might not have known what was going to happen to him. Swamiji talked about it, and I believe the case was Daniel Boone, uh, who's mentioned also in a, a one or two sections from now, where he, he had all these enormous spiritual experiences. And Swamiji had essentially none. Um, and, and Daniel was always having visions and ecstatic states and all these things. But in the end, Daniel left the spiritual path completely. And Swami, of course, didn't. And later on, Swami realized that Master was, was piling all those experiences on him because he saw that, there was, uh, that he was really so insecure on the path that he was trying to um, make it attractive enough and powerful enough and dramatic enough that Daniel would be able to hold that against the lure of the rest of his karma. And so when uh, Master, you know, showed this great faith in Harvey that he then later, soon after, um, repudiated the possibility by his own uh, experience. But still he has that memory that Master trusted him that much, that Master thought that highly of him. He also may have that memory that this is a responsibility in a future lifetime he has to carry out. You, you can't always take things on such a linear scale. You ever, never actually know where the energy is going to come from. Um, Master uses that word hot. He talks about it several of the ones that are coming. He talks about feeling heat coming from someone when he knows that they're caught in delusion. Isn't that interesting? I remember earlier, and earlier it's in the Patanjali um, commentaries. It's not in this book. Swami has a sentence in there that I'd never, I'd never heard before. He says that a great deal of the problem, the modern problem that people are having with being unable to conceive children, women having infertility problems, are a direct result of the promiscuity or the, the freedom with which women are living. He said because there's too much heat by the ovaries. Isn't that an interesting thought? It's the same, it was such an interesting you know, that, that this energy that comes out, and what's, what's ironic to me is that nowadays, the word hot, when you say that someone is hot, you know, it's a compliment. I mean, it's not really a compliment because it's, a, it's, a, it's an unfortunate way to gauge what is positive. You know, the seductress is the ideal person these days. 
and, and but it's just it's weird isn't it what is day to the worldly person is night to the yogi but also um, Harvey later went to visit his parents and while he was away he caught the bug you know traditionally in monastic life uh, people are, are in western monastic life people are cloistered and in the traditional sannyas order once you cut off your once you become a sannyasi you, you cut off your ties with your family and there's there's valid reasons for these things especially because you have all these subconscious associations and when you're just beginning to shift your energy you don't really know uh, which way it's going to shift I know there was a woman at Ananda village who Swamiji had put a great deal of energy into and had a, had a great hope for her and against his advice she went to visit her mother as it were and he knew that her mother didn't understand the spiritual path and he also knew that what was happening to the woman at that time was, was a huge shift of her consciousness um, that she herself was not entirely comfortable with so she went back to her mother who, who fed her every who fed her every doubt and assured her why in the world would you want to live anything other than an absolutely ordinary life and she left and never came back and, and Swami saw it coming think about Kumar in, the Sri, in Sri Yukteswar against the master's gentle hint uh, yes Kumar was his name he was the one who went away and then came back and was unsuitable I had an experience visiting my parents that my parents didn't put out they didn't actively put out energy but the situation put out energy it was after I had done some big project at Ananda it might have been the printing of the path it was about that era where I had just done a huge uh, very demanding piece of work and then I went to visit my parents for a few days and I came down ill I rarely come down ill, especially as ill as I was then because I had a high fever, which I, I rarely have. But I had a high fever. So anyway, whereas my, I had planned to stay about three days, I ended up being sick for five and I stayed there for maybe seven or eight days just continuously in that atmosphere. Plus, because I was so ill, my aura uh, went down. And I remember um, when I was well enough to get out of bed, sitting as family homes are often arranged where there's, you're all on the couch and you're looking at the television. So we were back in that position. It's not my family actually, we never did that a lot, but still when I'm suddenly sitting in the line looking at the television, there's this, you know, there's a lot of uh, repetition involved in that moment. I'm sitting there, I remember sitting there and the thought began to come into my mind that I could just stay. I don't have to go back to Ananda village. I could just live with my parents here, you know, it's comfortable and we could watch television together at night, you know, just the whole, the whole sort of feeling about how one would just do this. And I actually just toyed with this, the idea that I would just say out loud to my parents, I think I'll just stay here, I just won't go back to Ananda, and how they would greet that as if it were like, what a sensible decision and how glad we are, because they, they tolerated my being at Ananda, they didn't, they, they, they were wise enough not to oppose it, but that didn't mean they supported it. Um, they just assumed it would stop at a certain point. <laughs> but what's so fascinating to me was how clear it was that they would think that was a very reasonable decision. And I was simultaneously aware of the consternation it would cause at the other end. You know, that if I just announced I wasn't coming back, and I, I sort of wondered who would be delegated to come and get me. <laughs> 
and then I and then I had this very powerful picture, which again I was you know sort of semi. I had this picture, and it looked like a, a, a spider web. It was this woven kind of slightly hairy thread, <laughs> and it went from where I was in Los Angeles to my little trailer in Ananda Village, and it was it was a very very thin link. I could feel it was a very thin link, and there were demons, and they had their little hands on it, and they were bouncing on it. They were trying to snap it. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like I went into another world, but I saw it. They were, and they, they looked so happy. They were like children. They were bouncing, trying to snap the connection. And that was what was causing me um, just to think like that and have it just appear reasonable to me because I was being influenced. I was being influenced by that negative force. And, and that's, you know, we have to really understand that. That's why Master puts it. He, he caught the bug of delusion. It's like it's an active power and you go back to places where maybe there are people it's almost like if they actively oppose the spiritual path sometimes that strengthens you but when they're utterly indifferent to it and it suddenly makes you think that what you're doing is so weird it because it's a very subtle vibration and when you move too far out of it it just doesn't make sense to you anymore and or who knows what else but perhaps Harvey was exposed to things that he was trying to repudiate but then all those samskars were awakened in him you know we just master has the instruction he says that you should never in your life take even one sip of alcohol he said because you don't know what samskars you have he says and you know, many people many alcoholics say first time I ever took a sip of alcohol that was it I was hooked for however long it took him to get clean again he says, don't even do it. Don't touch it. So you, you go off somewhere away from the ashram and suddenly you have the opportunity to re-experience those samskars. Who knows? And you always have opposed against that. The, just the terrifying story that Swami tells in the path of one of the nuns who left. And Master said, if she had resisted her desire to leave for just 24 hours longer, she would never have been troubled again. Oh, you always think. <gasps> anyway, um, let me think one more thing. It's also just amazing how Master could just walk by and feel his vibrations. Harvey was just working in the garden. It's not going very well for you, is it? He could just feel it. We, we are all actually feeling each other's vibrations and consciousness all the time. We just don't know it. We're not, we're not accustomed to identifying it as that. And so we imagine it's something else. Or we're too lost in our own world to notice. But that doesn't mean that it isn't a tangible, discernible force at all times. And it's a very um, positive practice when we relate to anyone or to anything is that we should rest inside ourselves and try to feel the vibrations of it before we just look at things so superficially. Remember how uh, Master uh, Sri Teshwar says, try to discern behind the confusions of men's verbiage what it is that they're really trying to say to you. And, and some, that's how intuition works. Intuition works when you become still enough to um, essentially be, be in yourself, in the part of yourself that is unified, not separated from the person you're with. And then all of a sudden they're as clear to you as you are to yourself, um, which is why Master could just walk there. He, had, he felt the hot wave. Incredible. Comments or questions?
And number 182, two young men applied for resident discipleship. They had had printing experience and we were all glad to see their interest in living with us for the print shop was in need of workers. Those two men, however, left for just a few days, never to return. Afterward, the master commented, I knew as soon as I met them that they were not suited to our way of life. I felt a hot wave coming from them and knew from that feeling that they belonged to the world. That's just a phrase like Sri Yukteswar said about Kumar, the world will have to be his guru for some time. In this case, Swami tells this story everywhere. Everybody in the ashram got so excited because we had two new printers and Master was never, he was never interested in them. They really didn't belong there. They just got sucked in because they could print. It's very fascinating, though, to just see how many people move in and out of the spiritual life. Swami said Mount Washington, as he put it, remained a hotel for many years after Master bought it, with people checking in and checking out. They just, you just have this little bit of a call to the spiritual life, and then if you, if you, don't, if you don't nurture it and cultivate it in the right way, it can easily dissipate. One should never, never, never take it for granted. Number 183. Too many men, the master said. These are all notes to the monks, so you guys get it. We women get off on this one. Get off lighter. Too many men, the master said, come here impure. Their problem is lack of a proper upbringing. They come after they've had too much experience of the world. Sex washouts, I call them. They come here seeking relief. After some time, however, the memory of their old bad habits reawakens in them and they grow lonely for that past evil. Isn't that an amazing phrase? To get lonely for past evil? But you do, you feel bereft. Everybody else is out having fun and here I am. (laughs) You feel lonely for it. Then too... He says, boys are fickle. <laughs> he called all his, his uh, disciples boys. Then too, boys are fickle. They change girls, they change wives. They think in the same way they can change gurus anytime they want to. They don't have loyalty. It is the upbringing that is at fault. He's talking about America again. In India, there are just as many men devotees as there are women in contrast to America. Because... There they receive character training. Here in America, they get spoiled. Well, I've seen plenty of spoiled Indian men, but anyway, that's nowadays now. Okay. I, Walter, have often reflected since then that the master at that time was addressing the men disciples. He also told us, in men, sex temptation is stronger. Reassuringly, however, he added, well, women have their troubles too. They have greater attachment to maya. I love that. We'll go back to it in a moment. In conclusion, he said, when men do get there, they become very great. Okay, let's, why don't we spend a, a few minutes here at the beginning. Now, we haven't finished the whole one, but I'll, go, I'll read the rest of it in a minute. Um, you know, uh, let me see. I think, in fact, I'll, I'll read the whole one, then I'll, I'll comment. Lest any women, woman think women are more spiritual than men, as a senior nun once told me smugly, she would do well to remember the saying, it takes two hands to clap. 
Many men disciples, moreover, remain deeply loyal to the Master to the end of their lives. After the above words, the Master spoke of Andy, a middle-aged, kind-hearted man who had come to the ashram for training. Andy was a good man, the Master said, after Andy had left. However, he'd had too much experience of the world. There was no inner strength left. After the age of 40, a person must be very determined to change. Otherwise, it will be difficult for him to adjust to a new way of life. Once, the master continued, when I introduced Andy to a guest, I said, this is my baby. I glanced at Andy to see how he had taken it and then added, I call him that because I am babying him. The problem was I hadn't been able to inject any strength into him. I then said to Andy, I hope you don't mind my calling you that. Oh, no, sir, he said with a gentle smile. Don't think you can reach God with only a gentle attitude. As I have often told you all, you must be tough. Okay. Um, you know, there's a, as Swamiji once was commenting about uh, the difficulty that people have in marriage and relationships in our society now. And he, he made the comment that it's going to be several generations before it ever straightens itself out because he said people are simply not being raised to understand. He said we're going to have to raise up whole generations of, of boys and girls into men and women who have an actual understanding of self-control, of moderation, of the role that sexuality plays, of loyalty, of inner strength, all of these qualities. He says you can't just, I was just reading in something else that Swami wrote about education. He said, we just fill children's ideas with, heads with all this information, way more information than they can integrate. We give it, it has no context, especially nowadays. It just, there's no context. There's no overarching values. There's no spiritual principles involved. There's no Sanatana Dharma. There's no devotion to God. It's just nothing. And, and then we just give them all this information and then send them out and hope that they can figure out what to do with their lives. And we teach them almost nothing about how to master their own energies. We, we teach them nothing about how to master their own energies and almost nothing about how to relate to anyone else. In fact, increasingly, it's just, well, you just take care of yourself. That's what's really going to count. I had a discussion with someone who's, who's a very sincere and well-meaning, and it's just it's not like there was any fault here, but this is how it works. You know, had, had been working through uh, with therapy some serious psychological kinks that did need to be worked out. But the bias of the psychological therapy was, you know, you need to take care of yourself. Okay, which, depending on where you're standing on the spectrum, there's a point at which you have to have enough self to be able to stand up for it. And then there becomes a point where enough is enough. And we were somewhere on that borderline in our discussion. And, you know, my response, it was a particular situation at hand, and my response was, I think that's an incredibly selfish decision if you make that decision, and the consequences I think are going to be catastrophic. You know, are you ready for that? And posited against it was, well, the therapist says I should take care of myself. So, well, we are at a crossroads here. You've come to ask me what I think, and this is what I think. You don't have to follow it if you feel that, you know, therapy has its value too. And if you feel that speaks to you more than what I'm saying, then follow it. By all means, I'm not going to insist on anything. But what we're dealing with, and I see it so much in regards to men and women especially, just uh, 
the advice that's being given is catastrophic for, for human happiness. And the, the real truth is so unpopular, nobody wants to take it, which is actions have consequences and lack of self-discipline never ends well. <laughs> that's just the way it is. And we can argue against it as much as we want and experiment as much as we want, which is what we're doing now. We're just experimenting, you know, collectively, as a, as a, almost as a global culture. We're seeing how much selfishness is too much selfishness. And we're finding out. We haven't hit it yet. We haven't hit rock bottom. But we're on our way. We're racing to the bottom about as fast as we can go. Uh, somebody used the phrase, did I say this yet? Well, not on these classes. Somebody used the phrase that we're in the post-truth age. <laughs> and actually, I thought it was a very interesting statement. We're in the age where if you can manage to get it for yourself, it doesn't really matter how you get it. And if it serves you to speak in a certain way and you can get what you want by speaking in that way, then go ahead and do it. And be, meaning that there's no fixed point of reference you know, from which morality would descend. The only morality is, I want it. Can I get it? And we've been racing toward this um, it, with great speed for quite some time. And now we've begun to arrive, and we'll sort of see what happens when we get there. But Master's just there. He comes to America. You have to think of, you know, when Master came to America in the 40s, how unusual what he brought was, how extremely uh, peculiar. Uh, I was just reading uh, a transcript of uh, one of the voice recordings of Master, just a little fragment that I, I didn't particularly remember. Master was talking about his orange robes, and his long hair, and how when he first came to America and lived in Boston, he always went around in his orange robes and always had his hair down. And then he used the phrase, and I paid for it, he said. <laughs> Meaning, you know, he was just mocked and rejected and disrespected. And gradually he decided to switch over to Western clothes, and then he braided, he, he describes how he just, he said Western clothes are very practical, they're very comfortable, and you don't have to mess with them. And he braids, braided his hair and stuck it up into a little bun. Uh, he, he just saw that it was too big a leap. It just wasn't, it wasn't a necessary leap. They didn't have to accept the way he dressed and presented himself. They just had to accept his ideas. But he comes to this country and, you know, it's just a very, very different culture. And in the 40s, when he, in the, from the 20s through the 40s when he was here, I mean, we were um, a lot better than we are now. Let's just put it that way. Although there may have been less overt... Uh, licentiousness but there was a lot of hypocrisy to balance it so you really don't really know what was worse but it's just that simple comment boys are fickle they're not trained you know to the, in the same with the same sense of duty a certain amount of this is positive this is the Kali Yuga Dwapara shift where Swamiji said people are making experience the criteria for their values rather than dogma. And so a certain amount of it is of value. But until we are trained and restrained, uh, it's, just, it's going to be very difficult for people. It's almost like we can't help ourselves. The decision to be born in the West was not necessarily a really smart one, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> There's a question here. You need to use the microphone. Just spe speaking to the mic, for the sake of the recording. Okay. I'm not sure I understood what you meant by using experience 
as the basis for values and not... That was an answer that Swami Kriyananda gave to a question that was asked him in the early 70s when we were in Ananda village and a great many of us were part of the, the baby boom that just sort of took down traditional morality. It was that a lot of us came out of the hippie era and it was just like a complete repudiation of which you would almost call, well, of tradition in so many ways. And there was something called the sexual revolution, which, you know, the people who were in it thought it was a really terrific thing. And there was a, a conversation with Kriyananda, and someone said, what do you think of the sexual revolution, per se? And, you know, he's a very traditional Swami, and so you would have expected a very traditional answer. He said, let me think exactly how he phrased it. Hold, hold on for just a second. He said, it's not altogether a bad thing. That's what he said. Because at least people are making their own experience the criteria for their decisions. In other words, instead of just obeying what somebody else has told you without necessarily knowing the truth from the inside, people are um, having the courage to experiment. He said, however... It will only be good if they are absolutely honest in evaluating their own experience. In other words, morality is not imposed from the outside. Morality is discovered that when I behave in certain ways, there are consequences to those actions and those are not consequences I want. And so we have to be sensible enough to see it. I can take care of myself and assert my rights and stand by my boundaries and make all the demands I want, but people are going to respond to me in a certain way if I behave that way. And I have to then take the consequences of my behavior and ask myself whether or not it really was such a good idea. Or whether a little more generosity and a little more self-sacrifice would have really been in order. Swami's comment about infertility being a result of um, promiscuity to a certain extent. I, I'm, I hesitate when I say things like this. This is a film and it's going out to a lot of people who aren't in this room because when I say something like that, I can be touching an enormous wellspring of grief in many people's lives. And so I'm not trying to cast dispersions on anyone. Karma is very complicated. And I only have ever seen that statement of Swami's in one place, one line in the Patanjali um, Yoga Sutras. But I've always thought to myself, there has to be consequences. We can't just break all the laws of the way the human being is made and then just think we'll just get off scot-free. And so it's been interesting to me how many, and I just, again, I'm speaking in general terms, you know, um, terminating a pregnancy is a form of birth control. And it's just like we don't, we, we're, uh, we, uh, people act very casually in ways that, that a generation ago were unheard of. And then as a consequence, when they turn and suddenly want to live in a traditional way, have a family and raise them, it doesn't always come just like that. So why are we surprised? Now, karma is also generational and global as well as individual. You can get caught in it because there's many reasons why people talk about difficulty the couples have conceiving, including the food, the pesticides, the uh, electronics, you know, the this, the this, and this. That's why I say it's complicated, and I, these things are, are too 
agonizing for the human heart, for me to make it simplistic. But anyway, that was Swami-specific. And so what we're, what we're seeing now, he said, is what we're seeing is Dwapara Yuga energy just coming in, and people are just running wild with it. Swami says it's like, like we're all on a, a colt that hasn't been broken to a saddle yet, and we just have all this extra energy. We don't know what to do with it. But gradually we'll... And it's, it's just shooting out in all directions. That's why society is so unpredictable right now. But over time, we'll begin to ride it, and our own experience will start teaching us um, how we ought to behave. And we'll come back to it. But I, mean, I said to a young friend of mine um, in his mid-twenties, when he proposed, he made some remark to me just about the cultural condition at the university he was attending at the time. And I, I stopped him and I said, you don't have any idea how morally bankrupt that sounds to me, do you? <laughs> and it was just like, it was so common for where he was living. You know, just the people he was living with. And I said, well, the good news is, Whatever values you come to, they will be your own <laughs> because nobody's giving you, nobody's forcing anything on you. And in his case, to his credit, he has very high values and they are his own. And he does stand outside his generation to a large extent. It's not fun, but there's no choice. So anyway, these are all the, the delusion bug that we have to think about. Does that answer it? Sure. I don't think, I think Master was speaking in a very harsh way here because, of course, people are people. Many American men are fine men. <laughs> but he was having trouble there with his monks. And it's true, there were many more women devotees in America than men. The independent spirit was too strong. Um, then he makes this wonderful remark that Swami's often repeated that, you know, for, for, uh, for the monastic life, and this is where we're talking about, for the monastic life, sex is a is a, uh, a disconcerting factor for a man who wants to be a monk. And women are troubled also by that. As Swami said, it takes two hands to clap. But at the same time, women, I love the way he put it, women are more attached to maya. For women, it's more about my home, my children, you know, my, my protector, my this. It's just like the whole gestalt of it kind of takes them on. Men are somewhat attracted to that. But if they can... If they can um, transcend you know, the physical compulsion of the body, then they, they often are much less concerned about all the rest of that. Whereas women are always looking for all of that. And it just sucks you in either way, really. Just, I don't think there's any freedom on either side. But Swami said, and this was, you see, this was an issue in Self-Realization Fellowship when Swami was there, because all the leaders were women, and the reason all the leaders were women is because very few of the men stuck with it. Or if they did, they didn't live in the monastery. And Rajasi was one of the few, and then he died so early. But Oliver Black was next in realization. Oliver lived, you know, in Detroit. He didn't live in Mount Washington. The ones who came into the monastery and stayed were women. And uh, so one of the women said to Swami once, Let, let's face it, women are just more spiritual than men. And Swami thought that was preposterous, besides being insulting, and an extremely dangerous position for the leader of an organization to hold when you have men and women in it. And I, one of the things I detest about uh, the positive rise of the confidence of women to move through the world however they feel to move is the corresponding denigration of men. 
It's, I think it's, it's terrifying to me every time I hear it. I, I just, I mean, I hear women denigrating men and they're raising sons. I think, how could you be raising sons and talking like that? You know, you're so disrespectful to your husband. You think your boys aren't watching you? And it's just like, such things are unheard of in a balanced society. It's just not done. But we're badly raised and it's going to be a while. Now the last part that Master has in this particular one is this wonderful thing about Andy. This is my baby. And then he says, Andy says, no, I don't mind, sir, with a gentle smile like that. And it's um, one of the reasons that more women come to the spiritual path than men is because a lot of the attitudes of bedevity come more naturally to a woman. Um, you know, uh, devotion and service and so on like that. But what women often lack is the willpower to um, actually do what's needed to, to go beyond a sort of gentle impulse to actual transcendence of the ego. And that's what Master was saying, that Andy was his baby because Andy was just worn out. He says, he also uses that phrase, he came looking for relief. Is that where he says it, or was it about someone else? So-and-so had too much experience of the world and came looking for relief. Relief from the unsettling consequences of one's own actions. But then you recover a little bit, and all of a sudden it doesn't look so bad to you because you forget. I mean, this is the, just the nightmare of Maya. I mean, we all know it ourselves. We give in to an impulse, whatever it might be, an impulse to be angry, an impulse to sleep too much, an impulse to eat that whole quart of ice cream, an impulse to say something rude to someone, to bask in the glory of everyone's praise, whatever it might be. And then afterwards we say, why did I do that? Why did I do that again? I had a, a, a there was a period of time when I was in a situation where a certain kind of temptation was omnipresent in my life and my ability to resist it was not, not high. And I, in the morning I would say to Master after my meditation, if you give me the opportunity to behave badly today, you can depend on the fact that I'm going to. <laughs> I said, I just know it. So the only possible way to prevent it from happening is that you have to prevent the circumstances from arising. And uh, he, was, he pretty consistently did when I prayed like that. And then, of course, I'd become annoyed and try to outsmart him, but he never... <laughs> it, it worked. But that's the way it is. We just... the. Um, the number of times that we have to have those experiences. This is in the festival of light. The little bird forgot about his mission. He gloried in his newfound strength. How foolish I would be to share my strength with anyone, he says, even though he's been commissioned by God to share, you know, to be fruitful and multiply and share everything with everyone. No, no, I think I'll just keep for myself. What else is wisdom if not to keep what is Mine for myself. Which is such a marvelous line, because that's what we say. Well, I worked hard for this. Of course I would. Swamiji once said at the dinner table with some very wealthy people, he commented about how he just couldn't imagine if you had all that extra money that you would just spend it on yourself. And someone at the table said to him, now that's an unusual way to think about it. Swami thought, what other way is there to think about it? Why would I just spend it all on myself? 
Because, but that's what the bird thinks. It's not transparent at all. I worked hard for this. It's mine now. I'm going to have the things it can buy like this. Um, but the, the phrase that is the one that haunts us in the night is that he stuck with his point of view, the little bird did, even though repeatedly he lost everything he had. I love that phrase, repeatedly. You know, even though repeatedly this action brought him misery. He still repeated it. And we, ha- we have to just say that. I mean, that's actually also, weirdly, that's very comforting. Because don't freak out when you behave the same way. <laughs> and that's why it's really helpful to hear that. It's like, yeah, this is just like, between the, the, the simple thought that this would be a good idea and the ability to get all of your vrittis organized to actually be able to do it. There's often this huge space. And we just have to keep coming back to it. But that's where, especially in this particular reading, where, you know, Harvey Allen leaves and these two print shop people leave and little Andy's just kind of hanging around. You know, it's like, this is not a effortless project. You know, someone uh, wrote me a letter and they were talking about the honeymoon on the spiritual... They feel like their honeymoon on the spiritual path is over. There's certain phrases that I know everybody uses, but I don't like them. I really don't like them. That's one of them I really don't like. It's sort of like this assumption that it's everything is wonderful and then, oh, you sort of get this negative inclination toward the spiritual path. Where uh, honeymoon, what is the honeymoon? And what are we talking about? We're talking about like, oh, everything came for free and I didn't have to do anything? Of course, often, and it is, does happen. It's like Master opens the last chapter of the book and you get to read a few of the last chapters and then it slams and you have to go back to the beginning. And you do have to work through knowing the happy ending is there. And so, yeah, sometimes people do have effortless experiences. You move forward with effortless ease because Master wants to hold you. But the idea, I just don't like the negative connotation, I guess that's what I want to say. Because it, the whole idea of this is the greatest love affair of all time. And if you, really, if you really think of it like that, the honeymoon lasts forever. You know, the honeymoon being over is just such a whole dark way of thinking about all of it. This is the one love affair that will never go sour on us. So much of human life does, but this one never will. And what we have to do is we just have to do the needful to, 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 to make it a real spiritual marriage. Marriage between the soul and God. But that's really very gratifying work. It's, it's not. It's, it's actually more fun than just the uh, coasting along. But it's It just is what it is. I guess so. I guess that's all I can say. Somebody, the same, the same conversation, same letter. I wrote back saying, you know, because the person was just suddenly discovering that they still have all this karma to work out. Which, of course, we all have karma to work out. We get very excited and think we don't. We think that, you know, now it's over. I had this thought in my mind somehow when I came on the path that in five years it would be done. 
Not that it would be done, but that in five years I would have the key to the portable paradise and I would open the door whenever I wanted to and that would be that. Why I thought that, I have no idea, but it was just in my head. Of course, it didn't happen that way at all. But what happens is the spiritual path is a process of ever-increasing awareness until our awareness becomes infinite. And one of the things we become aware of is the true nature of the spiritual path. (laughs) So we just begin to discover that it's just not what I thought it was. It's not that uh, I just sort of sign up for this and then it's all settled. We become aware of, oh, look, I have many. Look at all the interesting dimensions to my own nature. Look at the difference between my affirmations and my samskars. Just look how different these are. Look at how I thought I was going to be one way and it's actually turning out another. But that is the path. People think that somehow something's going wrong, but not at all, because we are becoming aware of what is. And, and that's, that's growth on the path. It's very hard for people to understand, but it's very important to understand it. You have, wrong, you have the wrong concept about the path, you get very confused. Why am I being tempted? Why is it not going smoothly for me? Why am I still struggling in all these ways? Because that's the path. You know? It's not that the honeymoon is over. This is just it. This is what it is. But think of the alternative. And that's what you have to cultivate. And, and that, at least for me, has always been vivid. You know, that vivid memory of life without an awareness of God and self-realization. Now that's hell. Everything compared to that is heaven, regardless of what it's like. At least I remember it as hell. And I don't ever want to go back there. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Number 184. After the, man, after the Master finished writing his Bhagavad Gita commentaries, I often walked with him around the desert compound in the evenings. On one such evening, Boone, who had just arrived, also walked with us. Boone at first walked beside the master, who took his arm for support. A moment later, however, the master released his arm with the word hot. He then asked me to walk with him so that he might use my arm to lean on. Well, there it is again, hot. The master needed a degree of physical support on these walks, not because he was ill or infirm, but because his state of consciousness was remote from the world. Boone began to pester him with questions. Finally, the master said to him, you shouldn't talk so much when I am in this state. He paused a moment, swaying slightly as if about to fall. After a few moments, he began walking slowly again, remarking softly, I am in so many bodies, it is difficult to remember which one I am supposed to be moving. Wow, he's Sally. So there he was. There we, that was the other incident that he was describing of Boone touching him, or men master not being able to, not wanting to hold the contact, probably because he couldn't help him. You know, if he, if if Boone had been. I don't know what the subtle point is at which the mind really turns toward um, delusion in such a way that the guru is cut out. But obviously Boone was in that place because if Master could have influenced him, he would have influenced him. But instead he said, I can't have it. And of course then holding on to Swami, he's also talking about 
the fact that he was willing to um, connect with Swami and that his Swami's vibration was not like that. But then Master says, I'm in so many bodies, I forget which one to move. You know, I, um, I was talking to a friend who's a, a very much of a Vedantist, very much of a constantly remembering this world is only a dream. And uh, I, I had to realize, by contrast, that I don't spend a lot of time thinking this world is only a dream. It's not that I consider this world the real... My values within this world are always about right behavior and dharma and service and so on like that. But I just sort of take it for what it is. I don't spend a lot of time canceling it. I walk around in this body, this is who I am, like this. I don't, I don't constantly remind myself, which probably be a good idea to remind ourselves more. But Master was there living on this planet, but w- with such a, a lack of ordinary relationship, even to the body he was inhabiting, that sometimes he couldn't figure out which one to move. I, I, I experimented with that for a minute. I mean, there's a whole group of us in the room. Like, which one of us would go to move our own wrist and not know which wrist to move? I mean, we just always know, this is my arm. There's no, there's no place where I have to stop and consider it. Because it. But what Master's demonstrating to us is that this is nothing but a habit. This is not really a fact. This is just a habit. Uh, I remember when uh, I was with Swami at Disneyland, I put this in the book, about him uh, when we were all at Disneyland together and there was a, a lot of people many hundreds where we were and I remember him looking out over the crowd and saying and I had just for some reason come out of the I think I had been in the ladies bathroom and you know it's, it's crowded in there and people were in there with their children and I was particularly just aware of, of how many different vortices of reality were all going on at the same time you know, mothers and their children are such a uh, such an intense and tremendous force. I mean, it's, it's as it should be. God makes it that way. But when a mother is taking care of a small child, there's just a, a force field around that that is completely different than anything else. And so there, I'd been through all of that with the women pushing their babies in the bathroom. And, and he just looked out over all that and said... Uh, Imagine, he said, not merely loving all these people, but being all these people. He said that was Master's state of consciousness. And we all just sort of stood with him and just looked over it and just tried in the smallest way to imagine it. Center everywhere, circumference nowhere. So to move into that mother's consciousness and suddenly be in relationship to her baby instead of standing on the outside and watching it and having a certain empathy and even an enjoyment of it. But imagine actually having those actual feelings. You know, feeling toward her baby the same way she felt about it. Or an old person or a very young child. All of that. And that's master. He had to stop and think. I have to ask people whether I've eaten or not, I believe he says in another place. It just... They couldn't tell. I think that would be fun to try, wouldn't it? To just see, you know, just, just to, even as a divine exercise, as a meditation. So Master gave these experiences and said them to Swami so we could, we could remember. Okay, any questions or comments?
All right, let's take a short break then. I was asked uh, during the break about the to, to comment a little bit more about what Master said. There is, uh, after the age of 40, a person must be very determined to change, otherwise it will be difficult um, for him to adjust to a new way of life. Since many people are over 40 and many people did not find the spiritual path before the age of 40 and it wasn't their fault. <laughs> That's a very scary statement. And I, I saw, I've heard Swami quote it before on other occasions. Um, it, it, to, to make a statement like that is just to say it. These are the facts of the situation. Sometimes I, I used to feel that, you know, Swami shouldn't say things like that. Or people try to tell, well, you shouldn't say things like that because it's not true for everyone. But what's really trying to be said is these are the conditions of reality and you might as well know what they are. What is it going to serve you to be Master's little baby? I don't want to hear that because I'm over 40 there it's going to be difficult. Don't tell me that. That's, doesn't, that's not nice. You know, you have, to ba- you have to be babied. You can't be told. And Master just speaks very frankly. You know, people had too much experience. Their minds go back to worldly things. It's like they, it's just this life is too hard for them. They had too many pleasures, too many comforts, too many egoic satisfactions. These are the facts. The spiritual path is about increasing awareness and not being afraid of it. And it's just self-evident. If you're 40 or older, you have had a lot of time to build up habits. I mean, I, I came to Ananda, I met Swami at the age of 22, and I was living there just before I turned 24. Also, because of the way I lived, I just, I had nothing in place. Well, let me, that's not true. I had nothing external in place. I had a solid mass of internal confusion in place, just solidly in place. But I really do feel that I was raised at Ananda. That's how I often say it. I was raised at Ananda. And sometimes people will try to do the math because they'll think I was a child and they can see that I'm doesn't work. But I did grow up there. And it's always Ananda Village was my childhood home is the way I feel about it. And I know that was a great blessing because I just didn't really have. And then I would watch other people come and I can think of specific examples. You know, a man who came out of, from a, a very successful business career and the expectation that he should be listened to was just there. And as Swami said about one man, he said it's very confusing for him because he's very intelligent and he knows he has a light to offer. But Swami said he just doesn't have the right spirit so we simply can't allow him to influence anything. But he's so accustomed to being respected this is very, very difficult for him to be here. Or, and, or people who are used to being independent or used to having a lot of money or you know, many other things. Having their own things their own way and then they move into a, an ashram situation. If, if you have no habits or, and, and if you have youth on your side, I remember talking to, also to a young person who complained a person who was just maybe early 20s or even late teens complained how, how, how nervous the parents always were about that things might not work out. And, and he said, a lot of times they don't work out. He said, you know, a lot of my ideas are crazy. He said, but then he said, but I have the energy and creativity to deal with it. And I thought that's exactly right because he's young and he has nothing at stake. And so, he, so his car breaks down 25 miles from civilization in the middle of the night. He'll just sleep on the road. It's just, he'll be fine. And that won't seem like a big deal to him. Whereas to his parents, 
it's a, it's a, a hundred ways. It's, it's all scary. And partly there's a lack of maturity, but also there's just the energy and creativity to deal with it. Everything's an adventure. And unfortunately, most people, as the years go by, lose that flexibility. And they may also lose the creativity and they may also lose the energy. But what they really lose above all is flexibility. And so you're just, when you, then when you're trying to adapt a wholly new way of life, a whole new way of thinking about things, you just don't have the mental flexibility. And age of 40 is a line in the sand, at, at which point many people do begin to ossify, but some ossify much earlier, and some never do. They just never ossify. And so that's where he says, it's just you have to put out more energy. But depending on who you are, what it's like. But many people, you just have to put out more energy. I think I've been very blessed by Master because I came on the path, at, this path. Uh -huh. I did TM for 10 years before. Uh -huh. And then I came here at 45. Uh -huh. And uh, I won't say I haven't ossified in some ways, but I have never, ever wanted to go anyplace else. It's been difficult and sometimes. So I think, gee, good for me. I'm, it's, ble it's a blessing. And right. I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. The other way you can look at it, I mean, Master spent a lot of times in these categories talking about how, you know, people come, he, too many of the monks come with too much experience. He said they're not, they're not pure. They're not pure-minded like if you take a young, a young monk, a young man into a monastery in his teens or something like the a lot of the Catholic seminaries do, they just never get involved in worldly experience. And, you know, they may have certain uh, physical compulsions, but they've just never really lived out the life, and it's just not even real to them. The other side of it is, and this is the advantage of age, been there, done that, know what it has to offer, doesn't attract me anymore. So you can take it both, both sides of it. Because a lot of times, and I watch this a lot, and it was especially true of men in the early years of Ananda, in the early, early years, when people were in their 20s. And it was also, we just didn't really know where it was going. A lot of, uh, in the male consciousness, there was a lot of feeling that they needed to prove themselves. And so young men would leave because they wanted to prove themselves and they didn't know how to transcend that. And then a few others would come who would either come a little bit later or just had a different temperament they weren't troubled by that. And often it was because they'd already been there, they'd already done it. And they knew what it had to offer, and so they were um, grateful to put it down instead of constantly being pulled back to it. So you have to also tell this, uh, add the story that Master had about the woman who met him when she was in her 80s, but dedicated herself with such complete concentration that she, she liberated herself in just a few years because probably, one, she knew she didn't have much time left, and two, she'd already lived her life. Nothing else was going to attract her. She knew what it had to offer. I mean, that's the, that is the advantage of being older, is that it's still in this incarnation, and you can still remember. It's not like all those disappointments have to be resurrected in the next lifetime. So is there any thought or comment about that? I just feel like, just like he said, men are more attracted to sex, women to Maya, it's like you just, you have a pile of delusion and it's either going to be youth or old age, one or the other. It's, it's just whatever it is, you have to go full. You have, it, it takes every ounce of energy you have 
regardless of what the form is. I, I came to this conclusion um, many years ago that I said that all karma is really exactly the same. Um, it, is, it is anything that is strong enough to um, disturb your, your peace and your devotion. And it, it, we're very interested in the, our own experiences. We go to astrologers and psychics and we talk to our friends and we, we just spend a huge amount of time detailing out precisely what it is. And, and I'm, I'm making fun of it, but not really, because that's how we often learn and can unravel and you know, introspect and see what the pattern is. But in the end, it's merely anything that derails you. And the details are entirely irrelevant. The only thing that matters is it's derailed you and I need to get back on. So if it's masculinity or femininity or male or female or age or sickness or health, it simply has derailed you and strength is required to get you back on. Because in the end, it's all just maya anyway. That's the Vedantic approach that's worth thinking about. If it's, if it's sincere. I guess the reason I don't say it that often is because it doesn't... I, I, let me think what I'm trying to say. It doesn't work for me to just dismiss it. I'm too involved in the details. I'm a female. I'm too attached to Maya. So I can't just call it Maya and actually have that do anything for me. <laughs> and, you know, that's what my soul says, and. So what does that mean? Okay. Any other questions or thoughts? That's like Norman saying to... Uh, what was the context of that? Anyway, to say to someone, it's all in your head. Well, yeah, but it's all in my head. What am I going to do? It's in my head. <laughs> it's a very intimate place for it to be. <laughs> so, now, number one. I always tell people, uh, don't ever call your delusion stupid. You know, it's, I know it's stupid to feel this way. That's, people will say that really often. They'll be talking to me. I know it's stupid to feel this way. No, actually, it's not at all stupid. It's very subtle. And you've spent a long time building this up. And you just, it, 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 you just can't dismiss it like that. I know it's all, that's, where, that's what happens to me when I say, I know it's all a dream. No, I don't know it's all a dream. It doesn't feel like a dream to me, so it doesn't even help me to say that. And it's certainly not stupid. If it was stupid, I wouldn't be doing it. I'm not a stupid person. You know, in fact, I'm a very, very complicated and clever person. And so my delusions are complicated and clever. They're not at all stupid. They're very, very well worked out. <laughs> and insulting them, they're formidable enemies. Also, it's like, it's like those, all those, uh, those movies that were years ago. The, guy, the, the boxer guy, Rocky, the Rocky movies, you know. He had to go train in order to get in there to be able to knock the guy out and the delusions that, have, that are beating the heck out of us in the ring, we can't just call them stupid. We have to, we have to train hard to outsmart them and because they're not stupid. And it just doesn't help to just say that. Because it, 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 um, it doesn't help to just be at war with yourself. This it goes back to where I started. The spiritual path is ever-increasing awareness. And when we call our delusions stupid, we are refusing to pay attention to the fact that I'm deeply committed to this. You know? I really am committed to it because I want it. Whatever it might be. 
And much of what we want is God implanted. We need the karma. There's a question here. Do you want to pass the mic back behind you? They're, they're tethered to you. <laughs> they're energy patterns that, I mean, this is like, this is the karma in the spine. This is the vrittis in the spine. They're energy patterns created by your own actions and decisions um, that are all made with the identification with this particular line of experience and, and so that there's just this deeply cut groove in your consciousness that says that these experiences are relevant to my state of consciousness. The essential delusion is that your state of consciousness is completely independent of all of these things. So if you say, are they mine? It depends on who the my is. They're yours. They belong to, to this level of you. But the enduring you far transcends them. But you, you're, not, you're identified here. So, so the, the word identified with is really... But it, what's so interesting to realize is they're just vortices of energy. And so once we die and the name and the form of all of this story and all the thousands of stories before it. On Sunday I was referring to Bella who, who when she was dying she saw, she literally said, I said, she said, I see thousands of faces in front of me and they were all mine in one incarnation or another. She said, so I, the, the losing of this face is not really a, she couldn't take it very seriously because there were so many faces that had been hers before. Um, now, what was I going to say with that? Mm. Oh, yes, but when we die, when that face goes away, so much of what we call ourselves is dependent upon the identification with this physical body because then all the unique characteristics, because I'm identified and experienced life through this body, then so many other things become true. My husband, my wife, my children my mother, my father, my profession, my health, but it all comes down to this physical body. So when this physical body is not here anymore, then there is no reality to that. In Autobiography of a Yogi, it has that charming little part there, must be in the resurrection of Sri Yukteswar, where he says, when you get to the astral world, you, you discover husbands and wives and children and parents from many incarnations and he says something like at first you're a little confused like you know to whom do I really belong because we've spent at least the past incarnation identifying so deeply with this particular one but then we get used to it and realize that the friendship and the love and the experiences um, expressed in a limited form but are themselves not limited and we become comfortable with this whole other way of relating um, so when we die, all of that specificity dissolves. And all that's left is the vibration of consciousness that it represented. Um, the need for, to be admired, the need to have power over people, the need to be needed, um, whatever, the, uh, the thought that I have to be beautiful, whatever it might be. But it's just, it's a vib literally a vibration of consciousness, like a note on the piano between self-realization and complete materialism. There's a vibration there. 
So the fact that we come back into our bodies and start attaching it to stuff again, this is where the idea is, it's just generic. It's just anything that can disturb our peace. And that's why people become more and more impersonal. It's just, they're just my particular, the details of my particular life just are not really interesting to a person after a while. They're not interested in their horoscope. They're not interested in their past lives. They're not interested in their talents. They're just not interested in anything. Swami Kriyananda was a very exact example of that. He he was interested in being a disciple. He was interested in serving his master. He said in everything he did in his life, he said he just did it because it needed to be done. That's how he put it. There was no inner compulsion. There was nobody home. It just needed to be done. Master himself, he just had a personality because he had to have one. But it, it wasn't his. I mean, that's, my Vedanta comes in there. That's where it comes in. This is just an energy pattern. The fact that I'm experiencing it as X, Y, and Z is not nearly as important as the fact that this energy has thrown me off course and let me get back. You know, and and though, even though the mind will obsess and start working on this, it really doesn't matter. The only thing is that I get back. I talked about once I finally traced everything down in my own heart to the fact that somebody owes me an apology. <laughs> <laughs> and I just realized I just had this cosmic thought that somebody owed me an apology. <laughs> you know, just a sense of I'm more important than that or people ought to realize or why do they behave, however you want to play it out. And you, you, you attach it and often you have a very complex story. But really it's just like, and then you have to ask yourself whether they really do and what difference it would make. But that, that's how you die. You die with that thought. Somebody did me wrong. Born back with it. Does that make sense? That's why we need a guru. That's why we need Kriya. Okay, any other questions before I go on? Number 185. One of the questions Boone asked that day was following our walk. We were doing the energization exercises together in the master's company by the garage. Boone's question concerned a saint who had appeared to the master in a vision at the Encinitas Hermitage. I don't know to whom you're referring, the master said. It was on the bluff overlooking the ocean, Boone explained, behind the hermitage. Well, master said, so many come to me there. I often see them. Both of us were surprised. Is that so? I exclaimed. Why be surprised, Master said. Wherever God is, there the saints come. (laughs) So beautiful, isn't it? Just think of the world he was living in. He paused in his practice, then went on. Yesterday, I wanted to know about the life of Sri Ramakrishna. I was sitting on my bed meditating. Sri Ramakrishna materialized on the bed beside me, and we sat together a long time holding hands. I was thrilled to hear the account. Did he tell you about his life, I asked? Well, replied the master, in the interchange of vibrations, I got the whole picture. (laughs) There's so many touching. Um, At the end of this brief conversation, he went back to exercising. There's so many parts of that. Even just the part where master said, I was wondering about certain things about Ramakrishna's life. They they enter in. This is the part that you always have to remind yourself. They enter in so completely into this world. I wanted to understand some things about Ramakrishna. So he just came there to talk to me about it. 
And to master, it just, and this is, comes up also in a few later ones. You know, at a certain point, this is just the way you're living. And this is the way he's, we're, we're going to live too. Is even now, when I think about it, the life we live is so unusual. But those of you who all just went through Christmas with us, on Christmas Eve we come in here and we go through this extraordinary experience at the all-day meditation. The room was just filled with angels, some of them in bodies, some of them not in bodies. And it all seems so natural to us. And think how many people in the world couldn't even imagine what we were doing or what we did on New Year's Eve. It's just like they, they absolutely couldn't imagine. And for us, like, it's so natural. Like, where else would I be? What else would I do? How could I not? I remembered this year, this was, I said, my 45th Christmas meditation. And thank you, God, I've never been sick at Christmas and I've never missed. I've never been sick at Christmas meditation. And so I've never missed it. And it just comes around and I'm just so eager and so happy to go there. And um, people who are less, have less experience might feel more trepidation or people who don't have any relation to it think it's crazy. But it's just absolutely natural to us. So at what point does it become unusual? Only if it's not natural to us. So that's where Master just lived in a world in which all the saints were just present all the time. Why would they not be? Because they always exist. Their consciousness is always there. And part of what he wanted uh, his disciples to understand is that this is natural. Remember the little exchange between him and Swami when Swamiji um, had played the part of Jesus in the tableau for the Masonic Lodge or whatever it was? And uh, Master said something, asked him how about it, and and Swamiji said, well, I'd rather be like Jesus rather than merely look like him. And he looked like him because he had a beard, because so few people had beards. And also, I'm sure Swami had a very angelic countenance. But it was the beard that really got them. And Master, when Swami said, I'd rather be like him than look like him, and Master said, so casually, all oh, that will come. Just like that. Like, yes, you're only five now, but you'll be six next year. Just, yes, of course. And that's really what we want to take in. On one hand, you want to be just awed by what you're hearing. And on the other hand, you want to think, of course. Why wouldn't he come? Because we want to feel that way about ourselves. Of course, Master would talk to me. Of course, he would take care of me. Of course, he would help me out if I were in trouble. Of course, he would forgive me. Remember, there's a story somewhere where Master was upset with someone and the disciples said, well, you will forgive me, won't you? And Master Swami describes it. He said, Master looked positively shocked. Of course. Of course I will. But that's, that's part of just taking in that this really belongs to us. And that even though, Master, we might not be able to get Ramakrishna to materialize just because we're curious, it doesn't mean that it isn't a natural part of our lives. That it belongs to us as much as it belongs to him. So sweet. Well, replied, um, I submitted this, in a, this is the rest of this one. I submitted this interchange to the editorial department years later after the Master's Mahasamadhi. We had all been invited to send in material for a new book which was published months later with the name The Master Said. The editor was certain, evidently, that the Master would never have spoken so openly about his spiritual state as to say, wherever God is. She amended those words, therefore, to read, wherever a devotee of God is. This is the arrogance. This, of course, was Tara. Aren't, and Swami says, aren't all of us, however, devotees? 
that editorial change reduced the statement to virtual insignificance. I feel I owe it to Master to state that yes, he did say on that occasion, wherever God is. During the last years at least, and particularly when speaking with the monks, he often referred with a perfectly natural air to, the inner, to his inner oneness with God. There's the phrase, with a perfectly natural air. Of course I am. Several times during this period, he said to me, write my words down, Walter. I don't often speak from this level of impersonal wisdom. It's also interesting that Master himself would say, you know, I'm in a particular state right now and I'm not usually here. So when I'm speaking like this, you need to take note of it. And to be fair to the women, um, Tara notwithstanding, he apparently did not talk like that. And Swami said he realized many years later that Again, much of the difficulty between himself and the women leaders of SRF was that Master was very different with them. And they related to him personally as a person. And Master allowed that because there was no point in him trying to bring them to another bhav because it wasn't their way. Their way was what it was. But their grave mistake uh, was their arrogance in imagining that, that the way they understood him was the only way he could possibly be. And what they had experienced was the only way that experience, you could experience the guru. And that they didn't respect that it was possible that something entirely different could be happening in a parallel. You know, with Swami Kriyananda's life, it's been uh, amazing to just find out how many people Swamiji was relating to. And how, how everybody's energy was so different. And he, he gave to each person what they needed. And, and made each person feel unique. And I remember this one woman, uh, this was many years ago, trying to say, well, she should have these certain privileges because of this and this with Swami. She was his personal whatever. And somebody said, just very simply, well, we're all his personal whatever. <laughs> you know? There's nothing really special in that. That's just the way he is. But partly because Swamiji saw um, what difficulty came when a person reduced the master down to my own definition of him. You know, this is the facet of the diamond that I can see and therefore that's the whole diamond. And he was always eager um, to make sure that we didn't fall into that. You know, this is the single authorized channel for the dissemination of the Master's teachings versus all disciples have the same potential to be equally in tune. Extremely important theological points over which we have litigated at great length with the former leaders, former because in the astral world of SRF and us because we really follow very, 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 very different theologies in this respect. It's, you know, not every disciple is in tune but every disciple can be in tune. You simply cannot make rules that say only certain disciples can be in tune. Otherwise, it's the master you're insulting. As many as received him, that's what Jesus said. Okay, I think that's the end of the story. Is that all right? Thank you all very much. Okay. Uh, I, I read, I finished at, let's see where I started. I started at 181 and I finished at 185. And could I borrow a pen from somebody?